National Trust Magazine, Spring 2021. Hello, and welcome to the spring issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, features, and letters from our members. As nature starts to shrug off the winter and the natural world awakens around us, here at the Trust, we're looking ahead to blossom season. This spring, we're encouraging you to notice blossoming trees near you and enjoy the simple surge of pleasure they can bring. The Trust is working with partners to launch a celebration of nature in 2021, inspired by the beauty of blossom and its message of hope and renewal. Indoors, we're bringing you the stories of three treasures from the Trust's collections, chosen by the curators and conservators who look after them. Look out for the accompanying book of 125 treasures, published later this spring. We also have the intriguing story of a monumental conservation project at 20th Century Castle Drogo in Devon. The last castle built in the UK, it has never been watertight until now. As ever, thank you for your support of the National Trust. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Glenn McCready and Nekarakoya to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. An archaeologist working alone during lockdown at Oxborough Hall in Norfolk has uncovered one of the largest underfloor archaeology halls of its type in a Trust house. It includes Elizabethan textiles, handwritten music, fragments of 16th century books and wartime cigarette packs. Independent archaeologist Matt Champion made the discovery during a project to re-roof the late medieval manor house. He found a huge range of items spanning six centuries of life at Oxborough Hall when floorboards in the attic rooms were raised for the joists to be repaired. The star find was a 15th-century illuminated manuscript fragment on parchment spotted in the rubble of the eaves by one of the builders. It appears to be part of the Latin Vulgate Psalm 39 and is likely to have come from a portable prayer book. Anna Forrest, the trust curator who is overseeing the work, said, This could be a remnant of a splendid manuscript, perhaps belonging to Sir Edmund Bedingfeld, the builder of Oxborough Hall. Two ancient rat's nests contained over 200 fragments of high-quality textiles, most likely offcuts, as well as some scraps of handwritten music, both from the 16th century. Back in the Autumn 2016 magazine, we appealed to Trust supporters to help keep Churchill at Chartwell. We launched a campaign to raise £7.1 million to safeguard items from Churchill's personal collection so they could continue to be enjoyed in their original domestic setting at his home, Chartwell, in Kent. Four years on, the project has now successfully acquired and conserved hundreds of items once owned by the wartime Prime Minister, including his collection of inscribed books his Nobel Prize in Literature, a pair of hairbrushes made using wood from the deck of the Second World War ship HMS Exeter and a miniature paint box. The Trust was able to raise the funds needed thanks to generous support from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the Royal Oak Foundation, the Lindbury Trust, the Wolfson Foundation, Garfield Western Foundation and the David Webster Charitable Trust, as well as National Trust supporter groups, private donors and members of the public. Thank you. 
The appeal has also funded new experiences at the property. For the first time, a room used by Churchill's secretaries in the 1950s will be on permanent display. Fitted with original collection items, it tells the story of working life at Chartwell. Churchill's painting studio has been rehung with the help of historic photos in order to more closely represent the studio Churchill would have known. The Trust has partnered with Nidderdale Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty and 14 other organisations on the Skell Valley Scheme. The River Skell flows from Dallagill Moor through the Trust's Fountains Abbey and Studley Royal Water Garden and into the city of Ripon in North Yorkshire. The project aims to restore the heritage landscape, create better habitats for wildlife and make the valley more accessible for people to visit and care for their local area. The endangered large blue butterfly has been successfully reintroduced at Rodborough Common in Gloucestershire as part of a project to halt the worldwide decline of this special insect. The project marks the largest ever reintroduction of large blues in the UK. After five years of prepping the commons for the butterfly's return, 1,100 larvae were released on the 351 hectare site in August 2019, an estimated 750 butterflies emerged last summer. The large blue is the largest and rarest of all nine British blue butterflies and was declared extinct in Britain in 1979. It was last recorded at Minchinhampton at Rodborough Commons 150 years ago. The colony of grey seals at Blakeney National Nature Reserve in Norfolk is expanding at such a rate that rangers have had to change the way they count them. The site has grown to become England's largest grey seal colony, with the number of seal pups born increasing from just 25 in 2001 to an estimated 4,000 new arrivals in 2020. The success is due to low levels of disturbance and mortality during their first few key weeks of life this year and a lack of natural predators. Until now, the pups were counted individually by rangers and volunteers walking carefully through the colony, but from this year... Numbers of newborns and weaned pups will be recorded in just one specific area to create estimates. The Trust is trying to save one of England's rarest lichens by removing it from a fallen veteran oak tree in the Lake District and transferring it to dozens of nearby trees. The lungwort lichen has become increasingly rare due to air pollution and habitat loss. The translocation process involves removing the lichen from the host tree and attaching it to new trees using mesh, staples or glue. And those were some of the highlights from the Spring News section. And now, a report from the Trust's first members broadcast. Last year we were not able to have an AGM because of lockdown restrictions and the dangers of large gatherings. Instead, an online members' broadcast was held on the 7th of November. The Trust's chair, Tim Parker, was joined at Helis, our central office, by the secretary, Paul Boniface. To ensure social distancing was respected, the executive team joined the broadcast by video conference. Acting as MC, Paul invited Tim and the executive to answer members' questions submitted in advance or during the two-hour broadcast on a range of themes. Subjects included the Trust's report on the link between its properties, colonialism and historic slavery, whether the Trust was starting to become political, access for people with disabilities, 
and the state of the Trust's gardens. Other subjects included rewilding and trail hunting. However, much of the broadcast was taken up with questions about the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic on the charity, the human and financial impacts, and what it has meant for our places. A video of the full broadcast is available using the link mentioned at the end of this article. The next AGM will be on Saturday the 30th of October 2021. We anticipate that our Board of Trustees will propose changes to the Trust's constitution to enable general meetings to be held online in future should the need arise. We'll be explaining more about this in the summer issue of the magazine. And you can access a video of the full broadcast. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash members dash broadcast. Our next feature is from the Director-General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. Exactly 12 months ago, I set out ambitious plans to mark 125 years since Octavia Hill and her co-founders established the National Trust. Needless to say, like families and organisations around the world, we have had a demanding and painful year and we now find ourselves in a very different landscape. Thanks to the energy and loyalty of you, our members, we can begin to take stock and look to a period of recovery. It will, of course, take time, but I feel immensely proud to be part of it. I'm sorry to have to let you know that after forecasting losses of £200 million, we've been obliged to make a number of staff redundant. No leader wants to be forced into announcing redundancies, but coronavirus means we simply have no other choice if we want to give the charity a sustainable future. The Trust is only as strong as it is because of its people, and so I want to thank those who are leaving us and those who remain for their passion, professionalism and support. Last year was a time of great change and we had to make many decisions for the future of the charity. I know there are people who disagree with some of these decisions, but I'm grateful to our supporters for the thoughts and feedback they've shared. I promise to keep listening to different perspectives because they are what move us forward. I hope that, like me, you feel heartened by the fact that we have a clear purpose to help us weather the current storm, to bring nature, beauty and history closer to everyone forever. Before long, the days will start to lengthen. The first snowdrops will appear in our gardens and that sense of renewal and hope will build once more. The power and comfort of the natural world and its rhythms are central to the Trust's new programme, Blossom Together. The project goes to the heart of what we do, our finding principles and our core purpose. Providing more quality green space closer to the places where people live, working in partnership, helping people connect to the natural world and each other, and enriching lives with both nature and culture. Of course, last spring showed us so keenly the value of nature and green space and the hardship of unequal access to it. This spring, I'm looking forward to a new book, 125 Treasures from the Collections of the National Trust, which celebrates some of the unique items we care for and the often astonishing stories they have to tell. The word treasures can often be overused, but it couldn't be more apt here. 
The book shares the stories behind fascinating objects, including the first Bible to be translated to have belonged to Cardinal Wolsey, and a beautiful beetle wing dress worn by the actress Ellen Terry in 1888 when playing Lady Macbeth. The featured treasures tell us so much about belief, talent, power and downfall, hope, scientific discovery and artistic achievement. Through them, we can reach back into the past, be amazed and inspired and better understand who we are. You probably won't be surprised to notice that your 2021 handbook sent with this issue looks different. Some people will welcome the new look, some won't. But I hope you'll understand that it simply had to adapt this year, as it has many times before. Wherever your handbook takes you, I want to thank you for your support of the National Trust, which is more important now than ever. Whatever challenges this new year might bring, spring shows us that brighter times will come. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. You can hear more about the book of 125 treasures from the collections of the National Trust on this audio edition on track 8. Turn to track 9 to find out how the handbook has adapted over time and why it's changed again this year. In the next track, track 5, we share more information about the beautiful new Trust initiative, Blossom Together. As the Blossom season arrives again this spring, the Trust and Partners have come up with a way to help you enjoy it wherever you live. In 2020, the emergence of Blossom coincided with the first lockdown. For many, it will remain an annual reminder of that strangest of springs. As everyone's lives became limited in ways many of us had never experienced, the beauty of the natural world reawakening provided solace. The continuing cycle and rhythm of the seasons, when so little of our world was continuing as expected, was comforting for many. Blossom, beautiful but fleeting, moving from south to north and disappearing almost as quickly as it arrived, briefly became a powerful symbol of the complex experience people were enduring, together yet apart. When we were all able to spend only limited time outside, many of us took pleasure in the sight of even one or two blossoming trees along the curbside, or in a local park or green space. The Trust launched hashtag Blossom Watch on our social channels, encouraging people to share their pictures of Blossom and enjoy those shared by others. According to a YouGov poll commissioned by the Trust in June, 38% of adults said time spent in nature was the moment they looked forward to most each day during the lockdown last year. Since the lockdown, a third of respondents said their interest in nature had increased. Previous research by the Trust and many others has shown the importance of simple, everyday acts of tuning in to nature or celebrating natural events. They are so important for people's well-being, and it is those who are most connected to nature who are most likely to take action to care for it. This simple understanding is at the heart of so much of the Trust's work. Our autumn colour walks and winter trails have been very popular, and now we are looking toward the spring, taking inspiration from the Japanese hanami, or flower viewing. Japan's spring blossom season is world famous, and hanami is a traditional custom celebrated every year. It brings all generations outdoors to celebrate the transient beauty of blossom. It boosts tourism and is a shared moment for everyone. 
The UK also has a beautiful, spectacular blossom season of its own. Whether apple, blackthorn, hawthorn or cherry, our blossoming trees are a cultural and natural treasure. Celebrations of nature are long-standing traditions for some, but many people say they don't take part in anything like a harvest festival or summer solstice. In future years, we'll be inviting and encouraging people to celebrate the UK's own blossom season more, noticing and marking a wonder of nature each year. This spring, we'll be making the National Trust's hashtag Blossom Watch bigger than before and we'll encourage everyone to join in, both at our places and where you live. You can take part in so many ways, from merely noticing blossom every day or buying a blossoming tree ready for planting later in the year to photographing and sharing images of blossom you've seen or inviting friends out for a walk in the blossom. We hope you'll take part by visiting National Trust places when the blossom comes each year and enjoying the flowers wherever you are. Last summer, a report published by Vivid Economics highlighted national inequalities in access to green space. It categorised 295 deprived neighbourhoods of 440,000 people as grey deserts, with no trees or accessible green space. As blossom season rolls around again, the National Trust is working with partners on our own land and in urban communities to plant circles of blossoming trees across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. The flagship Blossom Together Circle will be planted in partnership with the Mayor of London at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in London, not far from the site of the First Nightingale Hospital. As well as providing beautiful, peaceful spaces for communities to come together and spend time in nature, the trees have a small but valuable conservation role to play as part of the Trust's pledge to plant 20 million trees by 2030, helping combat climate change and improving habitat networks. Blossom Together programme manager Annie Riley says projects like this mean the Trust can work with people we might not otherwise reach. She explained, Our co-founder Octavia Hill cared deeply about parks, calling them health-giving, joy-inspiring, peace-bringing. We know there is growing evidence that everyday connection with nature leads to a range of benefits for people and the environment. We also know that too few people are able to engage with it safely and fully near their homes. Blossom Together comes from a desire to bring all these ideas together. The intention is for the local community to be involved in the actual tree planting over the winter, with the first Blossom Together space officially opened in the spring at Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. It will be planted in partnership with the Mayor of London as part of the Mayor's Hashtag London Together initiative. Rosetta Arts, who ran workshops to find out what members of the local community would like from their new space, and landscape architects, the Edible Bus Stop, and Davies White Landscape Architects, who designed the circle. The design consists of 33 blossoming trees, representing the 33 London districts and arranged in three circles. The landscape architects have considered how local people already use the site, making sure it is easily accessible and that there are plenty of spaces for picnics and spending time together. They have chosen UK-grown trees, including species of cherry, plum, hawthorn and crabapple, to blend gracefully with the existing habitat. While the launch of the first Blossom Circle this spring is in London, plans are already developing for tree circles in other parts of the UK, on trust land and off it, 
in other urban locations. At least four more are planned for this year and next in Wales, Northern Ireland and elsewhere in England, with more to follow. Annie says, We're already planning further circles in partnership with Newcastle City Council, Nottingham City Council and Plymouth City Council. The programme is being made possible with thanks to support from players of People's Postcode Lottery. Plans are in their infancy, but we know these spaces will reflect the communities and unique character of the cities. In time, Annie wants to make it easy for local communities to create more blossom-together spaces in their own area and in their own way, leaving a legacy of beautiful, peaceful tree circles across the country. She says... The current situation has been a powerful reminder of how connected we all are and how much we depend on each other. Lockdown and the coronavirus crisis brought home the value of nature, especially nature near to people. We also became increasingly aware of inequality of access to high-quality green space. It feels fitting to mark this difficult time by creating small corners of the kind of world we want to live in. Green spaces where people can choose to come together or be alone, or find space to just be. As the trees begin to bloom again this spring, it feels like a good time to reflect on the life-changing events that began just a year ago. Blossoming trees have the power to brighten even the most challenging days, which is why the Trust is offering you the opportunity to dedicate a tree to commemorate an extraordinary time, to say thank you, or to celebrate someone you love. Last spring, the nation had just entered the first lockdown, and it was a strange and worrying time. People were concerned for their relatives, friends and key workers. For many, these anxieties have had lasting effects upon their mental health. Outside, meanwhile, trees were displaying one of the most remarkable blossom seasons of recent years, with everyone's time in the outdoors so limited, simply spotting a sprinkle of blossom on a walk around the block or in a local park, could brighten the darkest of days. Trees are powerful monuments in their own right. Ancient oaks have stood witness to more history than a human ever could. A young sapling brings hope for a better future for people and nature as it grows. Whether you choose to give £5 towards a tree sapling or donate £2,500 for a football field of woodland, by dedicating a tree, you'll be helping nature and people to thrive. Thanks to you, generations into the future will be able to enjoy spending time with their own loved ones in the shade of these giants. Your tree will enrich the landscape around it and become a home for nature. However you'd like to help, you'll be leaving a lasting legacy by supporting our aim to plant 20 million trees over the next 10 years. Thank you. Find out more about how to dedicate a tree. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag, forward slash dedicate, dash a, dash tree. I recently spoke to Head of Trees and Woodland, John Deakin. He explained why the Trust has pledged to plant 20 million trees by 2030 and how the Blossom Together programme fits in. So in terms of the 20 million trees by 2030, we're at two minutes to midnight. Climate change is not something that's going to happen to us. Climate change is something that's happened to us now. The clear fact of the matter is that trees are the best known tool that we have in our armory to combat climate change. Because the National Trust has a significant land asset that it can bring to bear to help 
both the country and ourselves meet our own carbon targets. You know, we see it as our obligation to try and do all that we can to repurpose our land to deliver for our climate needs, of which tree planting is one very significant part of that. So that was John Deacon, Head of Trees and Woodland. So from woodland to built heritage, as the dust settles on the seven-year conservation project to make Castle Drogo watertight, find out what it has taken to restore England's last built castle to its intended glory. Entry to the Grade 1 listed Castle Drogo in Devon is through a working portcullis, a gate strong enough to keep out even the most fearsome foe. Above it sits a giant granite slab carved with the frieze of a lion and Latin script bearing the motto Drogo nomen et virtus arma dedit. Drew is the name, and valour gave it arms. The lion looks like an ancient medieval herald, passed down through generations, but the castle's owner, Julius Drew, would have been delighted if you'd fallen for the illusion. It actually was designed by a fashionable twentieth-century sculptor. Julius was a successful businessman with a passion for genealogy. The privately educated son of a clergyman he came from an affluent family, but was not part of the upper echelons of society. He had a dream to create for himself an enduring lineage as a Devonshire aristocrat, complete with family seat. He built England's last castle on a wild Dartmoor hillside, just outside the village of Drewstainton. He invited renowned architect Edwin Lutyens to design it for him. It was an implausibly ambitious vision, and the twenty-year project was plagued with setbacks. The Dartmoor weather wreaked havoc on the castle, and it was leaking long before the last stone was laid. Now, following an epic seven-year conservation project, the Trust has finally realised Julius's dream and restored Castle Drogo to its intended glory. Julius and his business partner, John Musker, founded the grocery chain Home and Colonial Stores in 1883. Like contemporaries Thomas Lipton and John James Sainsbury, they cut out the middlemen to drive profits. Their strategy was successful, and they were able to retire after just six years. Julius was 33. But he yearned for something that money couldn't buy, to be part of the aristocracy. He set his heart on building an authentic, medieval-style castle. He was drawn to Dartmoor after a genealogist found a tenuous link between the Drew family and the Devon village of Drewstainton. Eight centuries before, a Norman baron called Drew or Drogo de Tain, or Tainton, had lived in the area, later becoming the namesake of the village. Julius was convinced the link between the baron and his own family was genuine. He decided to buy 180 hectares of land to the south and west of the village and build a family seat in the land of his ancestors. Julius asked Edwin Lutyens to work with him to bring his vision to life, and they started work in 1911. Lutyens had just created a magnificent home from the ruins of Lindisfarne Castle in Northumberland, also cared for by the Trust. At Lindisfarne, Lutyens had captured the romance and drama that Julius yearned for, and shown he was prepared to work in isolated settings. Lutyens was intrigued by the size and scope of the commission, and the challenge of creating a modern castle in a traditional style. Lutyens designed the outside of the castle in response to the Dartmoor landscape, 
particularly its famous tours. Medieval touches, including crenellations and a flat Norman roof, contrast with sharp edges on the stonework, giving the building a crisp, modern feel. Inside, in a nod to Julius's aristocratic aspirations, Lutyens created the illusion that the castle had grown organically over generations. Guests entered through a Norman entrance hall and gazed out through Tudor windows. They dined in a 17th-century-style dining room and took tea in a Georgian-effect drawing room. Lutyens also made sure the family had 20th-century comforts, central heating, electricity generated by a hydro-turbine house, and state-of-the-art bathrooms. But Lutyens and Julius's passion could only take them so far. The leaks were incessant. Various attempts were made to fix them after the castle was finished in 1930, including by the Trust shortly after Julius's descendants gave us the castle in 1974. All attempts failed, and with the water penetration destroying from the outside in, a final bid had to be made to save the castle. In 2007, the Trust's Saving Castle Drogo Conservation Team took up the baton to finally help realise Julius's dream. Tim Camborn, project manager for Saving Castle Drogo, says... It's such a uniquely challenging project for anyone who has attempted it because a lot of the original building methods were never repeated. For good reason. Lutyens had used asphalt, more commonly used for road surfacing, to cover the roof. At the time, asphalt was a relatively new material. It turned out to be poor for roofing since it reacts to heat by cracking, leaving the roof vulnerable to water. To make matters worse, the roof is completely flat partly in keeping with the Norman castle style Julius loved and partly to give him somewhere to stand and survey the surrounding countryside. Coupled with the use of asphalt, the design was a disaster. Tim says, We had to dismantle about a fifth of the castle in order to repair the leaks. To fix the roof, we took down all of the masonry that stands above roof level and removed the asphalt. We have replaced it with a continuous, breathable membrane, which flows across all 28 levels of the roof. Julius's obsession with medieval architecture also affected the windows. Tim explains, The windows were designed without windowsills, just like a real Norman fortress. Unfortunately, this leaves little protection from the Dartmoor elements. To make matters worse, the original builders used a linseed oil-based sealant when they installed the glass, which became brittle and disintegrated over time, so water began leaking in through the windows, too. We had to remove, refurbish and reseal all 913 windows to make them watertight and then repoint the whole building. We repointed 64 kilometres of joints in total. The conservation team needed to remove thousands of granite stones from the battlements and sections of wall, which they carefully labelled and lined up next to the castle while the work took place. Each one had to be replaced in its original spot. Masonry foreman Jez Greaves, who worked on the project from the start, was in charge of keeping track of it all. Despite the challenges, Jez feels sad the project is coming to an end. He says, It has been an honour to work on it, and the finished castle looks splendid. I hope the original masons would be proud. There were about a hundred men, including stonemasons and labourers, working on Castle Drogo when construction started in 1911, and a further 40 in the site quarry, providing Dartmoor granite for the stones. But progress halted with the outbreak of the First World War. 
More than three-quarters of the Masons joined the armed forces in 1914. Hardly any returned. Tragedy struck the Drew family during the Great War, too. Julius and his wife Frances had five children, the eldest of whom, Adrian, was killed in 1917. Adrian had shared his father's ambitions for Castle Drogo, and after his son's death, much of Julius's enthusiasm for the future died with him. The building itself was also plagued by setbacks. Costs spiralled, and by the time it was completed in 1930, Julius had spent more than three times the original estimate. Julius and Francis lived at Castle Drogo for a few short years before his death in 1931. There were hurdles to overcome for the Saving Castle Drogo team too, not least in 2020, when the whole world was shaken by the coronavirus crisis. Rebecca Glover, Visitor Experience Manager for Castle Drogo, explains. The crisis caused us setbacks as the construction sites had to close during lockdown. Like the rest of the Trust, we were impacted financially too. We had big plans to welcome visitors back with a grand unveiling and celebration, but understandably that hasn't been possible. Still, we are thrilled to be able to show the castle in its full glory at last. The castle is due to reopen to visitors this spring. Saving Castle Drogo will continue in the background as the team completes the final touches and makes sure the castle looks exactly as Julius Drew dreamed it would. Castle Drogo, one of my personal favourite trust places. This project would not have been possible without the support of the Castle Drogo Fundraising Committee and funding received from individual donors, DCMS, the Historic Houses Foundation, National Lottery Heritage Fund, Interreg and Wolfson Foundation. Up-to-date details about visiting Castle Drogo are available on the property's webpage, nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash castle dash drogo. Now, 12 years ago, lead ranger Katie fulfilled a lifelong dream when she became a ranger at Slindon in West Sussex. Her team has been running a project to return part of the estate back to woodland habitat. I wanted to be a ranger when I was at school, and after agricultural college, I volunteered my heart out before starting with the trust at Slindon. I was brought up on the South Downs, and several members of my family worked on some of the big estates nearby, so it's in my bones. Slindon is a 1,400 hectare or 3,460 acre woodland estate. At the top of the estate, we have beech, white beam, and veteran ash trees, with oak and sweet chestnut further south. We see dormice, lots of birds of prey, including kestrels and red kites, and almost too many deer. Each season brings different work, from coppicing and maintaining paths and gates to surveying the flourishing butterfly population. The idea to return an area of the estate to woodland pasture came after we were left a very generous bequest to create new woodland in the South Downs. In 2013, 75 hectares of arable land came back into our care. It already had some coppices and trees from the original woodland, which was cut down during the First World War. It was a difficult area to farm, so returning it to woodland seemed both sensible and exciting. Starting in 2014, we planted 13,000 native trees over two winters in the area known as Northwood, with the help of the local community. We tested the soil to see which trees would grow best. People came to help with their families, 
and we provided barbecues and portable toilets. We set ourselves challenges like planting 3,250 trees in one weekend. The children loved it. We erected deer fences to protect the trees. Inside, we planted one area and left another to regenerate naturally, using seeds blown or carried in by birds and mammals. We lost a few trees to rabbit grazing, but actually we had very little failure. Seven years on, the bare fields have been transformed. At ground level, you can't see from one end to another, and some of the willows are almost five metres tall. We've spotted several types of orchid and purple emperor butterflies. Some volunteers thought they wouldn't see a difference in their lifetimes, but they have. They are so proud and excited by the numbers of birds we now see in the new woodland. We've seen warblers, including chiffchaffs and blackcaps, and flocks of redwings and fieldfares. We saw a barn owl in the area for the first time recently, which was a landmark moment. The naturally regenerated area is taller and bushier than the planted one, but with less variety of species. In the next five years, we'll take down the fence and start managing the woodland in the planted area, while letting deer, rabbits and some livestock graze the other area. People from other trust places have visited to learn from what we've done. We've been ahead of the curve in terms of the trust's ambition to plant 20 million trees over the next 10 years. I think we've really shown how quickly wildlife can come in. I suppose it's not a surprise, as nature's been looking after itself for millions of years, it knows what it's doing. It was lovely to hear from Katie about the team's work at Slindon. Now, three curators and conservators each share the story of a precious treasure from the National Trust's collections. The Trust's curators and conservators have been looking after precious objects on behalf of the nation for more than 125 years, conserving and cherishing them and bringing their stories to life. A new book, 125 Treasures from the Collections of the National Trust, features some of the finest items in the Trust's collections. It will be published later this spring. Curatorial and Collections Director Tanya Cooper, who is also the author of this book, says... The greatest treasure houses of the National Trust were usually built for and furnished by aristocrats, the gentry, or wealthy industrialists. But today, they are a key part of the nation's heritage and open to everyone. The individual stories of the objects also cast light on patterns in artistic production at specific times and places across the world. The variety and scale of the Trust's collections, and the fact that pieces are often displayed in historic settings, rather than the protective environments of museum cases, make caring for them a continuous challenge. Fragile objects and delicate materials become vulnerable over time to what conservators call agents of deterioration, which include light, wear and pests. Tanya explains, Books and paper, textiles and ceramics, each requires a different degree of care, and work doesn't stop when the houses are closed. After cleaning... We cover large furniture and other objects with cotton sheets to protect them from dust and light, while smaller objects can be carefully packed up and put into storage. We call it putting the houses to bed. Our first object is a Lady Macbeth beetlewing dress at Small Hive Place in Kent, chosen by textile curator Emma Slocum. 
On the 29th of December, 1888, a packed auditorium at London's Lyceum Theatre sat in anticipation of one of the social highlights of the season. It was the opening night of Henry Irving's revival of Macbeth, in which he played the lead role opposite his longtime acting partner, Ellen Terry. The curtain rose, and Terry's appearance drew gasps. As Shakespeare's notorious villainess, she was dressed in a costume of bewitching splendour. A shimmering green robe, embellished with iridescent beetle wing cases, long dark red hair, plaited and bound in gold, cascaded over an accompanying heather-coloured velvet cloak to complete her look. It was the first of three outfits Terry wore to illustrate Lady Macbeth's changing psychological state over the course of the play. This one was intended to symbolise the character's ruthless ambition. Portraitist John Singer Sargent was there on the opening night. His magnificent full-length painting from 1889 of Terry in the dress with her arms raised triumphantly as Lady Macbeth claims her crown, is now part of the Tate's collection. The remarkable creation was designed by Alice Commons Carr and made by Adeline Court Nettleship. Its green and metallic crochet is overlaid with real wing cases shed by European and Asian jewel beetles. Its medieval design was inspired by an effigy of Clotilde, Queen of the Franks, originally from Notre Dame de Paris. Commons Carr, who worked closely with Terry on many of her costumes, later wrote that the dress combined the look of soft chain armour with the appearance of the scales of a serpent. Subsequent years were hard on the dress, which survived international tours and Terry herself, with her reputation for arriving late and dressing in haste. It was restored and redisplayed at Smallhithe Place, Terry's Kent home and country retreat, in 2011, after 1,300 hours of conservation work over two years and a cost of £110,000. Ar arglwydd iwfa mi gael, ni bydd eisiau arnaf. A fe a wnau mi orwedd mewn porfaidd gwelltog, a fe am tywys gellaw a dyfroedd tawel, a fe addych wel fy enaid, a fe am harwain ar hyd llwybrau cyfiawnder that was the sound of Richard Mitchley reading aloud from a copy of the first Welsh language Bible from 1588. He was reading part of Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. The Bible is the treasure chosen by curator Dominic Chennell. It's now kept at Chirk Castle in Wrexham, and it was the first Bible to be translated into Welsh, which was an enormously significant moment in the history of the Welsh language. Let's hear a little more. Ie peyrhodiwn ar hyd glyn cysgod angau nid ofnaf niwed, canes rwyti gyda mi. Dywialen ath ffon am cysyrant. Ti a arlwy ford ger fy mron yng ngwydd fy ngorllwynebwyr. Iraist fy mhen ag olew, fy ffiol sydd lawn. Daioni a thrigaredd yn ddiau a canlynad holl ddyddiau fy mywyd a freswyliaf yn hi yr arglwydd yn rhagywydd. In 1588, Bishop William Morgan returned from London to his native Wales with the culmination of ten years of dedicated labour, the first complete Welsh translation of the Bible. Morgan was born at the cottage of T. Mawr Wibernant in rural Conway. His intention was to bring the word of God to his people, but his 555-page Bible 
was a powerful work with consequences that went far beyond evangelism. Translated from the Hebrew and Greek, with reference to modern translations of the day, it established Welsh as a learned language of Europe and a legitimate voice of the Church. At the time, Welsh language and culture were under threat following the Acts of Union in 1536 and 1543. These acts meant the Welsh language had no status in either civil or ecclesiastical life. Today, Morgan's Bible is regarded as one of the most significant steps in ensuring the survival of the Welsh language. As accessible literature imbued with professional authority, it standardised Welsh grammar for the first time and helped to ensure the continued daily use of Welsh to the present day. Of the 1,000 of Morgan's Bibles published, only about 20 survive. This copy, which is part of a wider collection of rare Bibles in the care of the Trust, has recently been moved from Timauer Wiebernant and is now on display at Chirk Castle in Wrexham. Our final pick is an elephant automaton at Wadston in Buckinghamshire. It's chosen by Pippa Shirley, Head of Collections at Wadston Manor. The Rothschilds are renowned for their magnificent collections and lavishly decorated houses. At the turn of the 19th century, the family's influential style, focusing on 18th century paintings and decorative arts, became known as Gu Rothschild, the Rothschild taste. One of the best examples, Wadsden Manor in Buckinghamshire, was built for Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild in the 1870s and 80s to display his collection and entertain guests. A jewel in Wadsden's collection is an elaborate musical automaton made in 1774. It's the work of Hubert Martinet, a talented London-based French clockmaker. At the time, London was a centre of production for automata, featuring Western interpretations of exotic scenes and creatures for export to wealthy patrons in India and China. They were sometimes known as sing-songs, an expression deriving from the Chinese Jiming Zhong, meaning bells that ring by themselves. Such technological wonders aroused great curiosity in audiences of the time. Wadston's automaton is a mechanical elephant standing 1.31 metres tall and decorated with gilt bronze mounts and imitation jewels. A clockwork musical box in its base plays four tunes and the elephant swings its trunk, rolls its eyes, flaps its ears and swishes its tail. On its back, a turbaned figure carrying a sword and mace rides in a howdah mounted with cannons, while figures dance around the base. When the automaton is wound up, they all revolve. Soon after it was made, the elephant was exhibited in London, where it was said to have been commissioned as a present for a high-ranking official in India. This is unlikely to be true, since two years later it was exhibited again in Paris, and by 1853 it was one of the star attractions in Georges Tietz's Mechanical Museum in Reims. It was exactly the kind of object to appeal to Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild. It's known to have arrived at Wadsden by 1889, as it's recorded as having delighted the Shah of Persia, Nasir al-Din Shah Qajar, who visited the manor that year. 125 treasures from the collections of the National Trust by Curatorial and Collections Director Tanya Cooper will be available to buy for £10 later this spring. Visit nationaltrustbooks.co.uk to order a copy. You can also experience the stories of some of the treasures as a podcast.
It will also be available later this spring at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Just like the Trust itself, your member's handbook has adapted over the years to meet the needs of the time. This year, it needs to stay up to date in a changing world. So we thought we'd bring you a little of the history of how it has evolved over the years and explain the changes made this year. I visited the archives at the Trust's head office in Swindon, where I saw all the back copies dating back to the 1930s and met archivist Sophie Halton. Part of the excitement of joining the National Trust is the package that arrives soon after you take out your membership, containing the handbook of all the places you can visit. As integral to the Trust as scones and cream, the National Trust handbook is a little piece of history in its own right, and like the Trust itself, it has altered over the years to meet the needs of its time. Today it needs to adapt once again, but it remains an important thank you to our members, an inspiration for those wonderful days out, and a great place for you to read more about the cause you've chosen to support. The Trust, which was founded in 1895, hasn't always had a handbook. In the early years, a complete list of properties was often produced alongside the annual report, occasionally with maps showing where places were. From the early 1930s, the National Trust Bulletin and Newsletters, the forerunner of National Trust magazine, carried listings of new acquisitions, along with the names of those who donated them or contributed towards their purchase or upkeep. As more places came into trust care, an ever-increasing membership wanted to know more about them. Archivist Sophie Hulton explains. After the Second World War, the Trust published a list of properties and a supplementary list of acquisitions in most years. As time passed, more places began opening to visitors more frequently. In 1963, we started sending members an opening arrangements booklet to help them plan their day trips. By the 1970s, members were looking for more practical and historical information about the many houses, gardens and other places opening up for them to explore. They wanted something that went beyond opening times and included more about what facilities and experiences they could expect. In 1977, the Trust began to send members a black-and-white early version of the handbook. Sophie says, It contained more information about what visitors could expect in the way of amenities and more about the Trust's conservation work. By 1987, it looked more like the current handbook, but with black-and-white line illustrations, maps and a photographic colour cover. For the National Trust's centenary in 1995, its cover was turned forest green. The handbook continued to evolve, with maps becoming more detailed, counties more logically arranged, and information symbols more clearly defined. Colour photographs made an appearance in 2003. More countryside properties were included. As digital technology became increasingly sophisticated, there was less need for the handbook to include everything the Trust had to offer. Members started to use the website, updated in 2015, and accompanying app alongside the handbook for more timely information, as well as to find out more about the Trust's cause. This year, in the face of coronavirus restrictions, the handbook has had to adapt again. Membership Director Tom North explains. There are so many changing guidelines at the moment, with specific government restrictions in different regions and countries, we needed to make sure your 2021 handbook is accurate. Unfortunately, at the time of printing in November, we couldn't include everything we wanted to. 
For instance, we couldn't guarantee time-sensitive details, including opening times far enough in advance to print them, so we had to remove them. We've seen an unprecedented number of members visiting our website to plan their property visits this past year. We hope this will continue, and that next year we'll be able to make the handbook more in line with what we know our members love. At the same time, the Trust has listened to our members and made some other changes to the benefits you receive as part of your membership. We've created a special Members area on the website, so you get first access to extra articles, recipes, news and videos. The new recyclable paper-based member cards, launched last March in response to requests for a more environmentally friendly option, have been well received. The car sticker is now fully recyclable, including the backing. Tom explains, After this one, we won't send you a new car sticker every year, but we know how much our members love them, so you can always request a replacement if you want one. Despite the coronavirus challenges, Tom wants to make sure the 2021 handbook remains something for members to keep and enjoy. He says, Just as it has always been, your handbook is something to return to when you want to find inspiration, go on a journey, or learn about a new place. Who knows, in years to come, this year's handbook might even become a collector's item. Alongside your handbook, there are plenty more handy places to find up-to-date information about the National Trust. For accurate information about properties, including opening times and access information, visit the website at nationaltrust.org.uk. Make sure you also have the app. Just search National Trust app. Finally, you are always welcome to call us on 0344 800 1895. Trust chefs love to use fresh herbs to flavour everyday dishes. In this track, we're going to find out what they'll be planting this spring and how to grow varieties for your own cooking. A pan of tomato soup, vibrant with basil from a pot on the windowsill. Buttery new potatoes, transformed by a sprinkling of newly picked mint. A delicious stew, lent earthy warmth by a pinch of fresh thyme. Whether in a Trust cafe or in your own kitchen, it's easy to transform an ordinary dish into something magical, simply by adding fresh herbs. And with a bit of planning, you can ensure yourself a good supply virtually year-round. Whether you've a nice big garden, a corner of a windowsill, or something in between, now's the time to start planning and planting. As warmer days arrive, you'll be able to enjoy your crop. Ben Thomas, the Trust's Food Development Manager, says... Herbs are a really important natural way to add huge amounts of flavour to dishes, and when used fresh, they pack a much more powerful punch than dried. Many of our places grow herbs in their kitchen gardens. They add vibrancy to the dishes we sell in our cafes, while keeping packaging and food miles down. At places such as Packwood House in Warwickshire, the kitchen team simply steps outside the door and chooses what to make from an abundance of fruit and vegetables, and, of course, herbs. Packwood's food and beverage manager Simon Worth says, The great thing is we know exactly where everything has come from. We can just go up to the kitchen garden and pick what we like and use our creative imagination to make dishes for our visitors. In spring, they especially love our cheese, bacon and chive scones and roasted beetroot and feta salad with rosemary. The fresh herbs really makes the recipes sing. Simon's team is continuing a relationship with herbs and flavourings such as salt, 
spices and seeds that are stretched back thousands of years. In 1952, a peat cutter discovered a 2,300-year-old bog body in Denmark. When archaeologists analysed the stomach contents of Grawball Man, they found a variety of weed and herb seeds had formed part of his last meal. In the British Isles, hundreds of years on, the Romans began importing mint and caraway. They used caraway roots in a type of bread called chara. Later, records of physic gardens attached to monasteries reveal a medieval interest in herbal lore. The earliest cookery books were collections of ingredients rather than the precise instructions we're more familiar with today. Cooking times and quantities were generally left to the individual chef's experience and ingenuity, but the recipes specified flavourings, including herbs and spices, for particular dishes. One of the oldest known cookery manuscripts, the form of curry, is believed to have been written by Richard II's cooks in the late 14th century. It includes a recipe for pork in a sage sauce. Today, you can enjoy wandering around herb gardens inspired by medieval and Tudor times at several National Trust places, including Mottisfont in Hampshire, which pays tribute to its past as a 13th century priory, and Little Morton Hall, Cheshire. Spices and cookbooks would have been available mostly to the wealthy, but herbs were within reach of ordinary people. Well into the Tudor period, the diet of working folk tended to be based on pottage, a type of thick soup consisting of vegetables, oats, barley and sometimes meat. Cooks are known to have added flavour to pottage with homegrown herbs such as rosemary and thyme, which both remain popular today. While most of us lack the space for all the varieties grown in kitchen gardens such as packwoods, it's easy to grow herbs in a pot at home using seeds from a reputable garden centre. Look out for National Trust Seeds by Thompson & Morgan in selected garden centres. You can start by sowing basil, chives and parsley from January onwards, ready for planting out in warmer months. Plant dill and chervil directly outdoors from March. Ben says, Growing herbs in containers is a great way to introduce fresh flavours. Established herbs such as mint, thyme and rosemary can live happily in containers outside all year round and others, such as basil, do well indoors on sunny windowsills. Once your herbs are ready to pick, keep them fresh for longer by bunching them up, trimming the stalks, then wrapping them in damp kitchen paper and popping them into the fridge. Woody herbs, such as lavender and thyme, can be dried in an airing cupboard or over a radiator and stored in a jar for later use. You can freeze softer herbs for up to 12 months without losing flavour, liquidise them in olive oil and freeze them in ice cube trays or even make them into butters or vinegars. Ben says, there's something special about cooking a meal with herbs you've grown yourself. I always think it brings an extra bit of magic to a dish. Why not give it a try? For more tips on how to grow herbs at home, search National Trust Growing Herbs on the Trust website. Or do write in and let us know how you get on. And now it's time to hear from you. First up is a letter from Caroline Wood in the West Midlands, who says, I greatly enjoyed reading your article, 125 Stories for 125 Years, which I came across in my dad's copy of the magazine. In fact, 
it made up my mind there and then to join the National Trust. The article brought home how the Trust is investing not just in beautiful landscapes and historic properties, but in preserving livelihoods and crafts that would otherwise be forgotten. It also made me reflect how much I had benefited from visiting land in the Trust's care over the summer, from the Lakeland Fells to the Gower Peninsula. Unable to escape abroad, these breaks gave me the restoration I desperately needed. I now realise that it is thanks to the hard work of your staff and volunteers that these places are available for us to enjoy. I've been fortunate to live with my family during lockdown, so it seemed fitting to use my saved rent money to become a National Trust Life member, a true investment in all the special places I love and those I have yet to discover. Ivan Stafford from Leicestershire took a step back to the 19th century. A fortnight ago, a few friends and I met in costume for a socially distanced picnic at Belton House in Lincolnshire. The staff were very welcoming, and we were thanked profusely by members of the public who thought we'd been hired for an event. Kate Bass in Newcastle-upon-Tyne describes her visit to the coast. I have just returned from the Clean Peninsula in Gwyneth, feeling proud to be a National Trust supporter. Walking along the coastal path from Aberderon, we were struck by the extent of the positive impact National Trust management has had on the landscape. On entering the area of headland that has been managed by the National Trust for around 50 years, the grass and scrubland became a colourful array of heather, gorse and wildflowers around which numerous butterflies were fluttering. We were amazed by the benefits of leaving nature to flourish. In addition, many of the popular beaches were served with a sizeable National Trust car park, usually with facilities allowing families easily to enjoy this beautiful coastline. Thank you. Katie Lane in Staffordshire has been making the most of visiting Trust properties with her new baby boy. I had my first child in March and had thought that I would spend much of my maternity leave meeting friends at Trust places. We went into lockdown ten days after my son Luca was born and it felt like a very lonely time. When Trust Places started to open later in the year, we were thrilled. Our first visit was to Bidolf Grange when Luca was five months old. Since then, I have had several enjoyable visits to our local places, plus a wonderful holiday in the Trust Cottage at Colton Fishacre in Devon. And finally, we hear from Caroline Newmassey-Morton from London, who is a room guide at Chartwell, the family home of Sir Winston Churchill. She describes why she volunteers. Chartwell has always been my favourite trust place. My husband and I visited it many times and our first date was there. I started volunteering in 2018 when one of the house stewards asked if I would be interested. I wasn't sure at first because I work full time, but I tried it out and found that it's so enjoyable. I try to volunteer a day a week and I always look forward to it. I love history and used to be a teacher, so I enjoy telling the visitors about Chartwell. Often they are surprised to hear that the oldest part of the house has roof beams dating back to the 15th century and that Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn were said to have courted here. We've recently opened the secretary's office, which the visitors are enjoying. Churchill dictated everything, so he used his secretaries a lot. The room opened in September 2020, after a £7.1 million project and has been recreated to look like it did in the 1950s 
with telephones and typewriters. I learned about Churchill when I was at school in Kenya. My grandfather was recruited to fight in the Second World War and used to tell me so many stories about it. Churchill would say that a day away from Chartwell was a day wasted. To me, that's so understandable. I feel a lot of empathy with that. It's why I love volunteering there. Once guidelines allow, if you'd like to get involved in volunteering, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash volunteer. Receiving and reading your messages is a real highlight for the National Trust magazine team, so thank you to everyone who contacted us. Please continue to stay in touch. You can write to us at the editor, National Trust magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN22NA. Email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. Contact the Trust on Facebook or Instagram. Or tweet using at National Trust. Now we hear a little bit more from one of our members. Cora Herbert is a student at Newcastle University. She's in her final year of a politics and history degree. She spoke with assistant editor Karen Gregory about how her National Trust Young Persons membership, which was a present from her grandmother, has helped her to get to know her new area. This year in particular, I know a lot of students are finding it hard and they're getting quite downbeat almost that student life is most definitely going to be very, very different. All the sort of normal, you know, pubs or clubbing, that's a bit of a no-go. And a lot of people, I think, you know, seeing that as a real negative. But I think it's, you can see it as such like a, a positive in that this is a chance to get outside and, you know, try something different that you perhaps wouldn't have. It's almost forcing people to do something different. Mm. And I think a National Trust membership is sort of like a ticket into that world. It just gives you instant access to all these places that you'd probably want to be going this year, you know, doing something a bit different. You know, as, as students, we're trying to save money, but you can just sort of basically have like a free day out, go see some lovely properties or gardens or woodlands, whatever, and it's, you sort of just don't have to worry about it. You know, you're guaranteed to have a, a good day out. Does it feel nice to be able to sort of support a conservation charity while you're having a good day out? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of students and perhaps sort of, um, the younger generation are becoming a lot more environmentally friendly, a lot more eco-friendly, a lot more... So just minded about the importance of, you know, our local environment and how important it is to preserve that and to, yeah, conserve it, like you say. I think people are looking for more eco-friendly and sort of sustainable lifestyles in general. And I think going to sort of National Trust places where you're doing such fantastic work to preserve these places, it's all sort of part of that. I think it's a really good way to get to know your new area. To find out more about getting a young person's gift membership, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash gift dash membership. Now, before we wrap up this issue, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this spring. The ever-changing coronavirus situation means we can't bring you as many events as usual. But here are some that we hope will be happening and some of the wonderful spring flowers to enjoy across the country. Please make sure you check individual property websites, the National Trust app, or call the property before you visit. To start, you could visit the House with Two Faces at Castle Ward in County Down. 
For years, Castle Ward has been portrayed as the house of two halves, a proverbial Frankenstein's monster of Gothic and classical, created by a warring couple. New research reveals a different picture of an architectural masterpiece inspired by both Lady Anne Ward and her husband, Bernard's ancestries. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash castle dash ward. Or perhaps for a more tranquil encounter with art, you could wander around Benningborough Hall Gallery and Gardens in North Yorkshire. Explore how art has the power to calm and relax with sculpture, colour and video from artists including L.S. Lowry and Damien Hirst. The exhibition has been extended to the 31st of October 2021. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash art dash at dash Benningborough. Or be the first to experience the grand reveal as the scaffolding comes down from the rotunda at Ickworth in Suffolk. The Italianate rotunda at Ickworth is returned to its full glory following the removal of a giant scaffolding shell erected as part of a £5 million project to repair the roof. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Ickworth. There are also plenty of outdoor delights to enjoy at Trust Places as spring returns. From bluebells to birdsong, as signs of new life emerge over the coming weeks, we hope you find something to bring you joy next time you're able to visit. The first signs of spring can be found at Chirk Castle in Wrexham. Ethereal snowdrops, a sure sign spring is on its way and a symbol of hope for many. Take in their beauty at Pleasure Ground Wood and in the garden. You can experience the bountiful bulbs at Ham House and Garden in London and wild daffodils at Sizer in Cumbria. From mid-March, 500,000 bulbs begin to bloom in the gardens of Ham House. Delight in a pageant of punchy colour and scent, from seas of purple crocus to a romantic bloom of tulips and marvellous muscari. Also, more than five million wild daffodils bring spring cheer to Sizer from mid-March in a dazzling spectacle. Enjoy a springtime walk or a golden photo opportunity next to the lake. From now until early April, it's your chance to experience some special visitors from the north at Strangford Lock in County Down. Admire Strangford Lock's seasonal guests, the light-bellied Brent geese. Around 25,000 birds spend the winter here before returning to their native Greenland and northeast Canada about Easter time. From mid-April, you can enjoy the woodland wonder at Grey's Court in Oxfordshire. Follow Sir Felix's gentle path to discover a carpet of delicate bluebells in the woods at Grey's Court. Bluebells are steeped in folklore and have been associated with tales of fairies, making this walk a magical treat. From early May, you can experience explosions of colour and fragrance at Wentworth Castle Gardens in South Yorkshire. Enjoy Wentworth's towering purple and pink rhododendrons as they burst into life and admire the scent of the fiery reds, oranges and hot pinks of the azalea garden. Finally, for some of our younger members, there are plenty of family Easter trails to enjoy this spring. Grab your wellies and get outdoors this spring with nature-based Easter trails taking place across the Trust. Have fun in the fresh air with all the family and enjoy a chocolate treat at the end. Find your nearest trail at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag 
forward slash Easter dash trails. Just a hint of what's going on up and down the country as we welcome the sights, sounds and smells of spring. Well, that's all from us this spring issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Spring 2021 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Neka Akoya, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding. All items are copyright. You can access this and previous issues free of charge from a range of audio platforms. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.